0: enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone.
1: Welcome everybody to Nightlight. Thanks for sharing your time with us. We're really looking forward to tonight's show. First, I want to um, thank Ken Quiet Hawk for his lovely introduction. Please check him out on the Internet. Uh, he and his lovely wife are Native storytellers, and how they preserve history and cosmology and, and the magic of the universe with, with their people is very, very fascinating and unique and something we should all know a lot more about And um, especially tonight, since we are going to be going back into a lot of the Native American material, um, kind of to let you know that that the Native folk were far more evolved than the people who decided to land here and take over the land and educate them. Their spiritual philosophies and their practices were far and above ahead of the Europeans that decided to uh, invade this country. That's that's my opinion, but but it's shared by a few people. I have um, tonight with me Greg Little, and he and his his co-author Andrew Collins have written an amazing book called uh, Origins of the Gods, and it's a must-read. It really is. Uh, From Göbekli Tepe in Turkey to the Egyptian pyramids, from the stone circles of Europe to the mound complexes of the Americas, they show how again and again our ancestors built permanent sites of ceremonial activity where geomagnetic and gravica- gravitational anom- anomalies have been recorded. They investigate how the earliest forms of animism and shamanism began in sites. Psych- like the Denisovan Cave in the Alti Mountains of Siberia and the Kisan Cave in Israel more than 400,000 years ago. They explain how shamanic rituals and altered states of consciousnesses combined with the natural forces of the earth to create portals for contact with otherworldly realms. In other words, the gods of our ancestors were the result of an interaction between the human consciousnesses and trans and transdimensional intelligence, they show how the spiritual and shamanic beliefs of more than a hundred Native American tribes align with their theory, and they reveal how some of these shamanic transmen- <coughs> transdimensional portals are still active, sharing vital examples from Skin Watcher Ranch in Utah and the Bempton in, North, in northern England. Ultimately, they show how our modern disconnection from nature and lack of fully visible night sky makes the manifestations from these ultra-terrestrial intelligences seem random. If we can restore our spiritual connections, perhaps we can once again communicate with the higher dimensional beings who triggered the advancements of our earliest ancestors. Greg is an author of more than 30 books, including the Denisovan Origins co-authored with Andrew Collins. His research has been featured in the National Geographic Channel, MSNBC, Discovery, and the History Channel. And he's written probably the fi- finest book ever on Atlantis as well. So check out his stuff because it really is quite profound, and especially those things, too, that he co-authored with Andrew Collins. They They are a wonderful combination of of energy and intelligence and talent and gifts, and they put material out there that is not only thought-provoking, but it is educational and insightful as well. So welcome to the show, Greg. I'm so glad we, we are getting together to go over this material because it was fascinating to read.
2: Well, thank you, Barbara. Thanks for having me on. I think I've been on three other times with you. Can't quite remember, uh, but it's always a pleasure. I do want to say this right off the bat. Uh, I didn't write any of that uh, introduction, none of it. Uh, I think that was written – I don't think Andrew wrote it either. I think that was uh, the publisher's synopsis of it, Uh, nor did I write any of the title of the book. Uh, I just left the title, I just wrote what I wanted to write, and the title emerged, uh, and Andrew often takes a very active role in titles and subtitles and all. Uh, the book is partly about archaeology, of course. Uh, uh-huh. When you get into the Deniseva cave and you talk about Kesem Cave in Israel uh, and then all the little uh, accoutrements with that, it's clearly got a lot of archaeology in it. But it has a lot of Native American stuff in it, loads of shamanism, UFOs, ancient aliens, and all of it. Uh, so thanks a lot for having me on, and I guess we'll see where all this goes.
1: Yeah, I you know, I think... I was fascinated um well certainly I'm into UFOs you, you know that um yeah. it I loved I loved how you brought in how how a, a great many of the um Native American tribes have this three-world concept and it made so much more sense to me for some reason you know as you were explaining it you want to sort of share with 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 us you know, those who aren't familiar with the three-world order as far as the Native Americans go, because it makes perfect sense.
2: Well, I'd love to do that. In fact, Native American mythology and Native American spirituality and their deepest beliefs are what I am most interested in all of this. And I think they, their ideas and conceptions of, like, the paranormal, I believe, were dead on, and including their ideas of how the universe was created, Uh, They talk about a Big Bang uh, which and a singularity and all that, and that's old stuff. That's not me interpreting what I've read or what they said. That word singularity comes straight out of the ethnographers' books that interviewed the shaman many, many years ago. So, okay, Uh, the way the Native Americans explain this – now, when I say the way the Native Americans explain it, I'm talking about what is called sacred knowledge. There is two kinds of – I guess I should say there are two – I've got to self-edit here. There are two kinds of mytholo- excuse me, mythology and knowledge in Native American lore. One of them is called commonplace myths. If you go to a bookstore or a library and you ask for books on Native American legends or Native American mythology, what you'll be given basically – are stories about animals. You will see some about creation. Uh, One is the Iroquois where a a chief and a wife lived in the cloud world or in the other world and the the chief pulls up a tree and it makes a hole in the ground and he gets pushed through and his wife follows and that's how creation occurred. There are other stories about how a spider went across the lake and got fire. There are all these stories about animals. Those are all commonplace myths, it's called, and the function of commonplace myths were to instruct children and to have stories that gave a deeper meaning but those are mainly about morality, right and wrong. Uh, they taught skills using those, uh, commonplace myths and legends. But those aren't the sacred knowledge. The sacred knowledge was concealed by the elite of the ancient tribes. Now, we're talking about tribes that were around thousands and thousands of years ago. And the beliefs that I'm about to tell are have been traced back at least... 14,000 years into Siberia, and the beliefs that the Native Americans had about creation and the world are all the identical to what the Siberian shaman believed, too. And again, that's not me. Uh, I'm, I'm simply citing what the various ethnographers and anthropologists have written about it. So the sacred knowledge says, that, and this was concealed knowledge. They didn't want the general public to know this. So it all started, everything started with a singularity. And again, that term is not one. It's, it's a term that's used in physics, but it's not one that I've kind of picked out of the air. It's in the ethnography books. So they believed in a singularity. And what this singularity was, was a point of pure spiritual energy. That's what existed at the very beginning. It's very similar to the physics idea of a Big Bang. So this point of pure spiritual energy had some sort of consciousness or intelligence. Uh, It was alive as all spiritual energy is alive, at least from their perspective it was alive. But they were very clear to say that we have no way whatsoever of understanding it. All they can do is kind of describe and explain it, but understanding what it is, where it came from, and all that is simply impossible. It's beyond our comprehension. So, for whatever reason, they say that this singularity developed two portions that were in opposition to each other. It was a perfect opposition. And if you can visualize the yin-yang symbol, which is a circle that has two rotating pieces in it, almost like two uh, drops of water rotating around, that is a good way to at least visualize it. However, a singularity that develops two opposing forces isn't a singularity anymore. And that is what caused what physicists call the Big Bang. The Zuni, in, in their writings, said that what happened was initially this singularity was the container of everything, or the container of all is the direct translation of their word for this. And what it did when it developed these two opposing forces, it thought outward. And when it thought outward, it created the physical universe. So what, what happened then is that a three-part universe occurred. Obviously, we know there's a physical universe, and so in their commonplace myths, they talked about the earth, the earth as being the, the middle world, that we're in the middle of these two forces. Above us is one of those forces that developed within the singularity, and below us is the other force that developed within the singularity. And of course, the earth or the physical universe is in the middle. These two forces... They have terms for them and words for them. The simplest way to understand, understand them is one of them is the force of order, an orderly universe or the force of creation. That's what it really is. The other force is the force of disorder, or in physics it's called entropy. So how that works is creation creation takes things and it puts them together It creates new variations, and everything is created through creation. And then as soon as something is created, the other force begins at work, and that's the force of entropy. Entropy in physics simply means that everything eventually degrades back to its most primordial form, whether it's a physical object, whether it's something that's non-physical, everything degrades back to its original primordial form, and then, of course, creation takes over and takes this original this original primordial form and recreates. So you have on the physical earth, we see this constantly in the seasons, the seasons are orderly, but throughout the seasons, things fall apart, things change, everything does. Like trees, trees uh, bring their leaves in in the spring. Uh, They bloom throughout the summer, and then in fall, it all starts degrading back. Everything falls to earth, and it goes through this cycle again and again. And that's how they saw everything in the world. The upper world, again, being this force of order or creation, has very consistent things happening to it, predictable things, such as the movements of the sun, the movements of the moon, the movements of the stars, all of those are very, very predictable and very orderly. On the other hand, the, the, the spirit of disorder or entropy creates literally uh, all sorts of chaos on Earth. The chaos is in the form of storms. The chaos is in the form of, of illness that happens to people. Wars they considered part of the spirit of disorder. Uh, they saw many, many things as part of disorder. So, okay, in this concept, the physical world exists as a three-dimensional space that essentially functions as a double-sided mirror. So what I mean by that is this. The mirror of the Earth, the physical world, reflects the power in the upper world. Again, the upper world is the power of creation, and it reflects the power of the lower world, which is this power of entropy, and these two are in a constant interplay in the physical world. So the physical world came into existence to allow those two forces to continue to exist and to continue to exert their force. So that is the basic concept with it. Into this physical world came humans. And humans were placed here for two reasons, according to the Native American belief. And those, two re- those reasons are, first, we can appreciate and understand these two forces. We can appreciate and understand and observe creation occurring, and we can also watch things become disorderly, and we can watch the process of entropy. In fact, we are part of both We are created, we create things, but ultimately we all degrade back. Dust to dust is basically what that means. So that is the basic concept. The purpose humans really were put here, other than to just appreciate it, in the Native American belief, they were tasked or they were basically required to maintain harmony on earth. That is why they believed that land could not be owned. It could only be occupied and utilized, but it couldn't be owned. It's also why they revered all other life. You know, if they killed an animal for food, they prayed over it and thanked it before they consumed it, and they consumed every part of it. They utilized everything in the world in a very a very harmonious way with nature, because it was all about harmony. So that's kind of a summary of it. Uh, That's the three worlds, the three worlds idea. There's an upper world, a lower world, and a middle world. We're stuck in the middle world, and we are subject to the forces of the upper world and the lower world forces, and they intrude constantly here. But we can interact with those and if we don't interact willingly these forces still interact with us anyway and that's kind of the lead into everything else but that's the basic concept uh they performed rituals to interact with it the rituals definitely had certain effects uh and again uh, that's 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 just the basics of it so there you go
1: well i think what <clears throat> what fascinates me and and impresses me is that you know you you've combined over a hundred or more Native American philosophies, and you've come out with basically the same story from each of them and if you look at religion in Europe especially and 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 today, there are so many different religions, and they differ so greatly and yet the Native Americans, no matter where they were, basically had the same philosophy as to a spiritual pathway as opposed to a religion.
2: Absolutely. You know
1: that that impressed me so so tremendously. It was it was I I sat here thinking, you know, why you know, this this is a wonderful philosophy and and basically it does make life easier when you understand, you know, where you're coming from and that you're you're at the middle ground and you have a choice to go one way or the other. Um, Absolutely. Where yeah. where does where does the the aspect of the trick, trickster come in because that that fascinated me?
2: Well, the trickster is a, is the most probably the key to the whole thing. Um, so within this middle world as we interact with the upper and lower forces. The, I suppose a, a con, another concept that I need to throw in here is that, remember, everything started as a singularity of pure spiritual energy. Uh, okay, So once you get that, it's the same thing that Carl Sagan is credited with saying, and that is, uh, we are all made from stars. And so Uh Carl Sagan recognized very early that the Big Bang essentially means that everything in the universe is made of the same stuff. So everything in this concept is spiritual. Everything in the universe in this Native American idea is essentially spiritual energy that is manifested in its own way. So dirt, for example, is the most primordial of spiritual energy. Uh, And so they used dirt in in North America. I'm talking about North American, Native Americans now. In North America, they used dirt or soil to create mounds and earthworks as a way of interacting with this spiritual force. They also used rocks. Rocks are a form of condensed spiritual energy. And under the right circumstances uh, or placed in certain ways, Rocks can be used to interact with these spiritual forces. In addition, there are natural places on Earth with certain kinds of rock formations that interact with it. Water is flowing spiritual energy, so water becomes important in their rituals. Fire is the release of spiritual energy. And crystals, for example, is a type of purified spiritual energy. So all of those elements were used in their rituals. So, to take it to tricksters, tricksters are pure spiritual energy also, and so what is a trickster? Trickster is a manifestation of either the upper world or the lower world, and usually a trickster is a manifestation of both at the same time. A trickster is not good or evil, it simply is what it is, and it usually comes initially, when you're trying to contact or interact with these spiritual forces, generally you encounter a trickster first. And what a trickster does is that it will impress you. Uh, You can think you're seeing something that is profound and amazing, but it always deludes you on the front end. It literally does delude the person. So even Carl Jung, Carl Jung wrote about the trickster, and that's where I very first was was introduced to it. Jung was really impressed with the Native American concept of the trickster and how they dealt with it. Tricksters come in the guise of animals. They come in the guise of the little people, which we'll probably get to at some point here. Uh, Tricksters come in the guise of the fairy jinn. There's the fairies and the jinn. The jinn are a Muslim variation of fairies. Uh, the agrori, which you and I talked about briefly even before we started the show, uh, all those kind of bizarre little entities people have been reporting really for all time uh, are manifestations of the spiritual energy. So the trickster, when it appears to you, its function is a test. It's always a test. Carl Jung, for example, wrote that the whole practice of shamanism is all about interacting with and trying to get by the trickster. And if you can get by the trickster, you will get higher spiritual knowledge or actually just real prophetic knowledge. So the trickster functions as a test. And the trickster manifestations uh, in psychology, psychology talks a lot about tricksters. The traditional psychology explanation is the trickster is the way that people would explain their own stupidity. You know, we all do really stupid things now. I mean, really stupid stuff. <laughs> we we can yeah. destroy our cars. Uh, we can get drunk and have accidents. There's all kinds of dumb things we can do. And so in psychology, the trickster is sometimes used to explain that. People will say, oh, it was the trickster. And Native Americans would often say it was a trickster that led them to do something that was bad or that something bad happened. So it is a spiritual entity that is neither good nor bad, but it usually deludes you at first. It adopts its appearance and its behavior, and we know this through cross-cultural studies. That's hard to say. Uh, It adapts (laughs) its appearance and behavior to your culture, whatever your culture is. So in Native American culture, the trickster came usually as animals or little people. Uh, It may be that Bigfoot or the Yeti, uh, is a trickster aspect, too. Uh, I think it is, and most Native Americans, modern ones anyway, believe that it, that it is, a, is a form of trickster also. Uh, but it comes in different guises. In other cultures, the trickster takes on different forms, kind of adapting itself to what their expectations are. So all this is an interaction between us and this spiritual world And in this interaction, the spiritual entities that appear to us and interact with us adapt themselves to what we expect and what our culture is, and they probably adapt to us individually also. So that's kind of a simple explanation of the trickster, uh, but in general, that's about the most that that people can handle in understanding it.
1: (laughs) No, it is, you know, we're, we're in talking about spiritual energy and shamanism, and um, <clears throat> we talked to, you talked in the book about um, human energy, which um, is, is really important because it, it's important for people to connect to it and understand that there is an energy that is coming from the, the, the earth and Native Americans knew about it I mean, they used it, um in, in their ceremonies, they used it, um constantly and because Native Americans are off, were often barefoot or, or, you know, touching the earth Absolutely. or being connected to the earth, they were they had access to Schumann energy, um Far more, more, more than people today do, and there's there's a book out there called Earthing that talks about Schumann Schum energy and how, if you can resonate to it, if you can sink yourself to it, it improves your health. and And it, you want to explain a little bit about the Schumann energy because sure. it is, it's it's sure. something okay. so important for people to know about.
2: Well, it's sad. to most to to a lot of people, they're going to go, what the heck is that? Uh, mm-hmm. So I'll actually start with cell phones. Your cell okay. phone, your cell phone is putting out electromagnetic energy. People talk about radio waves. Well, radio waves is is electromagnetic electromagnetic energy. All right. So there's different frequencies, and it goes from very very high frequencies. You know, we talk about gigahertz now. Five G. Yeah. Well, five G is the gigahertz is five gigahertz, and it's a specific frequency. On the electromagnetic energy spectrum, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, there's 4G, and, it, and 4G is obviously less than the 5G, but what that is is a frequency of vibration. So everything that exists, every physical object, is, is putting out electromagnetic energy. Things, Everything reflects and produces electromagnetic fields. The Earth produces electromagnetic fields, and the basic electromagnetic frequency of the Earth itself is called the Schumann. Like you said, it's the Schumann resonance, and there's actually three resonances. They are all multiples of the same thing, and uh, the exact number doesn't matter, but it's 7.83 hertz. That doesn't really matter, but there was one time in our history when the Schumann residence was the only thing around. And when I say one time, I mean basically everything before the Industrial Revolution began. And the reason I say that is that as soon as we started using electricity and putting electric wires up everywhere, and then we began using regular radio, which uses part of the electromagnetic energy spectrum, and we had television, which uses part of the electromagnetic energy spectrum. And we developed various nuclear energy, which is at the complete other end. Okay, suddenly electromagnetic fields occur everywhere around the Earth. So your cell phone, people think when cell phones connect to a tower, that there's almost like a line or a beam. They, they conceive of a laser beam going from your phone to a tower. That's not how it works. Your cell phone creates a gigantic electromagnetic bubble around you, and that bubble, when your phone is far away from a cell tower, it actually puts out a lot more energy and creates an even bigger bubble. Cell towers, every time a phone call is made, anywhere, cell towers everywhere blast out a bubble of electromagnetic energy at a very specific frequency until it connects to the single phone that has that exact frequency. That's how it works. So when I actually wrote the chapter in the book that discusses this, I got on my computer. Of course, I was writing on my computer, but I I checked my Wi-Fi connections. And I had 21 different Wi-Fis that I could theoretically connect to. Uh, And when I say 21, that's the real number. I was connecting with a motel that was not that far away from me. I was connecting with the FBI, Homeland Security, the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, Tennessee Wildlife and Game Commission, and then everybody around me, all of the cell, all of the... Uh, cell phones around me uh, that had Wi-Fi on them. I was connecting with uh, neighbors' Wi-Fis. So basically, I was in what I like to call an electromagnetic cesspool. Well, that electromagnetic energy cesspool didn't exist before the Industrial Revolution. Native Americans and everybody who lived before the ancient Native Americans evolved in this Schumann Resonance. And they know that that occurred. That is basic biology. Mainstream biology talks about it, that we are definitely connected to it. And now we aren't anymore. In fact, we get as far away from it as we can, and we exist in this literal cesspool of it. It's just everywhere. We are just engulfed in it. I'm sitting in a room that has lots of lights on, a computer, a printer, lots of other – I have actually, several computers, and all of those – have electromagnetic energy going in and out. So what does that mean? Well, if you actually read the – I don't even know now if you buy a new phone. Do you still get those little tiny booklets with them? I remember oh, getting I, them. I actually read them. Or I think you've got to go online to, to, to read yeah, it now. Yeah,
1: I think you do. Yeah. yeah,
2: well, if you go to the very end of those little tiny booklets in really small print, it says, oh, this is really safe, except don't use it more than a couple hours a day and don't put the phone up to your ear. That's basically yeah. what they say, uh, but they still say they're safe. Well, why is that? Well, it's because electromagnetic energy does interact with human cells, and we know electromagnetic energy interacts with the human brain and human neurology. We know that. There's loads of research on it. In fact, a, a neuropsychologist that I hope we get to talk about at some point here did research on using specific electromagnetic fields on humans in laboratory settings, and he produced all kinds of absolute bizarre effects with it. Everything from people having UFO and abduction experiences in the laboratory to meeting angels to meeting what people – some people interpreted it as, as God. Uh, others mm-hmm. saw all kinds of things occurring. Uh, but we know that these electromagnetic fields interact with us. Well, Native American rituals, we know from the old ones in this that when they did their rituals, they often grounded themselves in this electromagnetic field, specifically the Schumann resonance, and what they would often do is they would remove sod uh, from the soil. And the reason is is because you're not really grounded then they wanted to get they wanted to move the plants that were growing and get down below the roots, and they would literally use bare feet that they would put into the sod or the soil when they did the ritual so they could connect to the earth's ambient electromagnetic field. I don't think they thought of it that way. I think it's just something that the shaman told them they had to do, whether it was through trial and error, which is what the anthropologists say, or if they got that instruction from the entities that appeared to them, which is what they say happened, we don't know. uh, But they connected with it by literally grounding themselves in it. So the point is this. It's very difficult today. For people to truly ground themselves, you have to gr- ground yourself into nature. You have to almost mold or meld yourself with it and become one with it to connect to it. So Native Americans did that to harmonize with these powers and this spiritual energy. So this electromagnetic energy, all right, let me just get one little piece in it here for, so people understand. Visible light is part of the electromagnetic energy spectrum it's on the whole spectrum, which goes from extremely low frequency waves which are which are some sort of radio radio waves are the best way to describe them uh, and the only use that I know that um, that is used um, uh, in the military the u s Navy, many, many years ago, actually used uh, very low frequency electromagnetic waves to communi- to communicate with submarines all over the world and They actually built these gigantic miles long antenna in the great lakes of all places, and from there they could communicate with submarines anywhere around the world, which is actually astonishing when you think about it. So uh-huh. it goes from these really low-frequency electromagnetic waves, which is a type of energy, and it progresses through or down through like 5G and 4G and 3G on down, and it goes through radio and TV. uh there's cell phones in there, and then it goes to Um, infrared light. Then you hit visible light, which is situated right in the middle. Visible light comprises about 4.7% or so of the entire electromagnetic energy spectrum. And remember, I said to start this, electromagnetic energy is reflected from all objects, So what we see is we look out and we got lights on. You're seeing electromagnetic energy, which is in the visible light spectrum, bouncing off of objects, and then your eyes pick it up. And We'll get to that in a minute. So then the spectrum goes on down, goes through infrared, which, of course, owls can see infrared, which is heat. They can see heat signatures of animals. Well, the heat signature is simply electromagnetic energy. It's infrared. And then it goes up and up to higher and higher levels, which means more power and and greater frequency or quicker vibration, and eventually reaches cosmic rays and radiation. And, of course, if you're subjected to that, it can kill you. It causes all sorts of problems. It can cause cancer. You know, you get too much sunlight, uh, you get cancer, but it's not the visible light that's doing it. It's everything above that. So it's... Uh, electromagnetic electromagnetic energy is one of the things that people have real trouble trying to get a handle on so in your eyes and i've i've had this discussion a lot lately cuz so many people are interested in the use of hallucinogenic drugs and what it does but we are antenna that's the best way to think of this we humans are antenna just like old radios used to have you know you you put the antenna up and what those radio antennas picked up is they picked up electromagnetic energy and they tuned to very specific frequencies in the electromagnetic field, and then they turned it in to sound. That's how radios work. Interestingly, they often use a crystal to do that, but that's another story. So our, our eyes, inside our eyes in the back of our eyes are the retina. Retinas, there's one in each eye. And the retinas have these tiny little cells which are pretty much exposed in the back of the eye. They're called rods and cones. The rods see black and white, and the cones uh, see color. And what they are, there's, there's millions of them in your eye. What they are, they are antennae. They're basically little, tiny, biological antennas just like your radio picks up very specific frequencies over the airways. Your eyes pick up very specific frequencies over the airways, but the airways in this case is the visible light spectrum. So we are biological antenna moving through this electromagnetic energy field that we live in and we evolved in. Native Americans had some idea about this, I don't know how the shaman really understood all that. Uh, the use of various drugs, I believe, probably changed the tuning uh, of these biological antenna that I'm calling rods and cones because that's what science calls them. Uh, but again, mm-hmm. that's another story. But that's just kind of a summary of it. Well, so I'll, what, I'll stop what, there and let you, let you go on.
1: Is there, is there a connection? Because I know... Um, People who um, are on a spiritual pathway—and I I don't like that term—but that's the best term I can think of right at the um, moment—find that that if they get themselves into a state of theta, you know, brainwave, you know, alpha, beta, theta. Right. um, If they get into theta, they are more—they are more open to communication on other levels. So, does that have anything to do? With, yes, it does. With um, Schum- oh, the Schumann rem- resonance and stuff? Okay.
2: Yep. The Schumann resonance is right on the cusp of theta, uh, and that's when things really do happen to people. If you put an electroencephalograph on your brain, which you're not going to be able to do, you've got to go into a laboratory somewhere or a medical facility to do that, uh, and they are measuring your brain's electrical activity, what they're really doing uh, with this is they're you're, they're measuring... What is happening electromagnetically within your brain, and when you are, when your brain waves are roughly at that 7.83 hertz, you are in a state that is right between wakingness and me- basically meditation. You're right at the cusp of it. And that is when experiences begin to occur. And that may be exactly what the natives uh, meant when they said that they are trying to meld with the spiritual forces. And yes, they used meditation. uh, They used rituals and ritualistic drumming, ritualistic whistles, and even dancing to exhaust themselves. And when you're in that state of exhaustion, I mean, people can do this by just getting physically exhausted. Not that I'm recommending that. Uh, but yeah. but a lot of rituals simply get you to that state to where your brain is basically vibrating. And when I say vibrating, I'm talking about the electromagnetic waves right at that mm-hmm. 7.83 hertz. That is mainstream science. Uh, it is a part of science that very, very few people really get into or understand, but it's very scientific. Meditation and different types of consciousness levels, whether it's sleep uh, or whether it's full waking consciousness or whatever, that is all definable in neuropsychology based upon brain waves, absolutely. So that 7.83 is the exact resonance and frequency that a person wants to get to to interact with these forces.
1: Okay, so now big question. During these ceremonies that the shamans and the Native Americans um, went through to get to resonate, to, to connect, did they create paranormal manifestations, or did they were, did they just become aware of what was already there?
2: Well, that is a darn good question, uh, and the chances are it's both. Um, <laughs> I believe that a lot of times that under altered states, that people are observing things that are already there. For example, I've already used one example. Uh, I didn't explain it much, but I simply just mentioned it it in passing. And the reason it was in passing is because I'm pretty much anti-drug in all ways. I, I really don't believe that people should use, for example, hallucinogenic drugs. I know they do. I know a lot of people are into it. Uh, but I believe hallucinogenic drugs uh, at, at some doses and some of them change the frequencies that us as biological antennas are tuned to. I think they physiologically, physically change the tuning, and we are more receptive to seeing and perhaps interacting with what is in the electromagnetic energy spectrum. On the other hand, their rituals were designed to call forth spiritual entities. And we know that for a lot of reasons. One is they told us. Another is it's been told to lots of people and written down by the old ethnographers. Native Americans today will tell you the same thing. As in the book, I gave an example of the Cheyenne arrow priest that came and stayed with my wife and I for 30 days with his family. Uh, And he Mm -hmm. explained a lot of this also. But they physically manifested or brought into appearance, I guess is the best way to say it, uh, spiritual entities, which I believe are probably electromagnetic in nature. And, of course, that goes to plasmas, and we'll get there, uh, since that's the force I believe they use. But I think both are happening. Sometimes our mental state can be altered so that we can observe a different spectrum in the the electromagnetic energy spectrum that's all around us all the time, but we simply don't see it. Uh, And it's a good thing we don't see it. It would be extremely disruptive in living. In fact, you couldn't live if we saw the entire electromagnetic spectrum because you would not be able to see any physical objects at all. All All you would see is color, and constant moving waves everywhere around you all the time. So that, that's why our eyes are tuned just to the visible light spectrum. <clears throat> that's, that's why. We couldn't function otherwise. But yeah, I think they're actually doing both. Some of their rituals very clearly were designed to manifest these entities or spiritual forces physically into sacred spaces, and they constructed sacred spaces. I know on earlier shows I have talked about the construction of Indian mounds and earthworks. There are loads of earthworks that were made in North America, not just here around the world, but I'm just talking about North America. There are lots of earthworks that are circular in nature. And what that means, they would take a flat space and perhaps even enclose 50 acres in some cases. And when how they enclosed 50 acres is around this flat space, they would build a circular wall, a perfect circular wall of earth, maybe 15 feet high, maybe 20 feet high, with no opening. So in order for them to get in it, they have to walk over the sides and down. Well, why would they do that? Lots, lots of their spaces, lots of these circular earthworks that they built, and there's thousands of them in the United States, lots of these earthworks have a single opening, and those are usually aligned to very specific stars which were used in specific rituals at specific times of the year. But why would they make a space that has a circular embankment around it, basic, basically enclosing it? And the reason is, we know this, they were they believed that the spiritual entities could only travel in a straight line, and if you had an opening, you could release them elsewhere in the world that they could wander elsewhere so when and they didn't know if a trickster was going to come always because remember I said that a trickster is almost always encountered first, and so they didn't want to manifest a trickster entity or a negative entity and then release it to their tribe in the surrounding area. So what they did is enclose it with this wall, and then when they were done with the ceremony or whatever it is, uh, they simply left the site, and that's what they used those for. That was the purpose of the closed circular earthworks. I don't. Did I answer your question?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. I. I. You know, I'm. I'm trying to to figure out here. I know that that they, they had these ceremonies that would open portals that would that would allow spirit energy to come through um but how did they how how does one tell the difference between a spirit energy and an extraterrestrial because they believed in those as well
2: well that is a different thing we can we're talking about the visitations in some of their uh beliefs uh, is not the same thing as them performing these rituals on a regular basis they performed when I say they performed them on a regular basis. they were generally seasonal. They had a very specific time and they used real specific places to to perform the rituals when they would manifest a physical entity of some kind. Uh, and there was a purpose in the manifesting of the, energy, of the entities, and it was basically uh, to harmonize with them. And if they harmonized with them, uh, it ensured good a good future for the tribe and for individuals, and they used it for healing and so on. Um, the, the The idea of aliens or extraterrestrials is actually in a separate chapter in my part, the ideas that the Native Americans talked about. So modern Native Americans, <clears throat> there are lots of them that talk about star people. And that is pretty much modern stuff. Even Brad Steiger, the author who wrote 400 books uh, and died a few years ago. I knew him and his wife, um, knew them fairly well. Uh, they they wrote a book called uh, Native American Medicine. And when he started writing that book and visiting tribes, Uh, and this was actually back in the late 50s and early 60s when he did this, he said almost none of them would talk about visitors from space or star people. They would talk about rituals and their medicine and, and how they sometimes would try to use medicine-based rituals to manifest spiritual entities, but most of them would not discuss beings from other worlds at all. That is a pretty modern thing. If you go back into the old ethnography literature, and that is a term, ethnography is a term about studying other cultures. There were ethnographers that started meeting with Native American tribes, actually starting in the late 1500s, Uh, It really picked up in the 1600s. Most of that was done by the black robes or the priests that came and visited them. Uh, And then in the 1700s and 1800s, lots was done with them by ethnographers because there was a movement afoot, particularly that started in the very late 1800s when most of the Native American tribes had been exterminated either through disease or war. There was an effort made by some people to try to preserve their knowledge before it was all gone. And there is where the only stories that I'm aware of, ancient stories of what, what most people would call star people. But virtually all of those stories are, are the same kind of thing. And what all those stories talk about are a light that is seen in the sky. Generally, it's a glowing orb of some kind. And that glowing orb moves down to Earth. It usually interacts with some native uh, who's part of the elite. Often it is a chief. Some of the stories are about chiefs that interacted with them after the chief's wife died or his children died or there was some major battle and many of them were killed. Uh, and they interacted with them. Within these glowing orbs were beings. And the beings almost always told them, almost all the stories are the same. The beings almost always told them, go back to the tribe, go back and try to make peace and bring harmony and take care of the people. So there's probably 20 or 30 of those stories in the ethnography literature. None of them, in none of those stories that I could find, when I initially started studying this, I thought, "Oh, I'm going to find a lot of stories where they say that, you know, these entities walked out of a craft, and it's just the same thing as a UFO experience." <laughs> well, I couldn't find any. Uh, there is one experience. Uh, I think it was a Kalispell tribe, where a hunter who, after he slayed a bear, uh, became aware he was preparing the bear. Uh, slaughtering it, basically, uh, but he was preparing it, and he felt a presence behind him, and he turned around, and there were three, what he called dimorphous, or at least that's the word that is used in the ethnography book, three dimorphous beings. Dimorphous means translucent for people that haven't heard it before. There were these three translucent beings that told them, told him that they were guardians And they were spiritual guardians uh, that were tasked with maintaining harmony. And they actually took him up into the sky. He didn't go to another planet, but when he went up into the sky, he looked down and he became aware that that they truly were spiritual guardians. And then they brought him back to the earth. That is the closest thing that I could find in that old literature that actually even looks anything like a real UFO sighting. There are many beliefs though in, in a lot of the sacred sacred literature that they have and the sacred stories and the sacred knowledge, uh there are stories of souls and and what you can call spirit beings or energy beings that come to the earth. In fact, in their belief system we are all souls that are comprised of pure spiritual energy and we make a trip across the universe. Uh, it's the same thing. Edgar Casey said. I mean, it's this. This part I always found really intriguing. They believe that we came from the from a hole uh, in the upper world, and that hole in the upper world they come through. It's in the far northern sky. It is located at the spot that we call the North Pole Star, which today is Polaris. Seventeen thousand years ago, when all these belief systems were, at least we know that they were at least, um, if not started then, they were very active then. At that time, the star Deneb, which is part of the constellation of Cygnus, uh, it served as the North Pole Star because of precession of the equinoxes. Uh, of course, the Earth wobbles, and as it does over over 26,000 years, it makes a complete circle every 26,000 years. And as uh-huh. it does, the nor- the sky changes a bit, And the North Pole Star transitions from one thing to another to another. However, way back then, it was Deneb. At that exact time, uh, back 17,000 years ago, when Deneb served as the North Pole Star, if you uh, looked all the way to the south on the extreme southern horizon, what you would see right above the horizon from all of North America, what you would see – is the constellation of Orion. That was at the extreme north. So Cygnus and Deneb was at the extreme north. Orion was at the south. So their idea was that the souls come through the hole, which is formed by the pole star. It is a portal. The souls come through it. Then they travel down the Milky Way, and they reach Orion's nebula, And they hop from Orion's nebula and come to the earth, and then they inhabit the physical body. And they inhabit the physical body either at the moment of birth, that is one of their beliefs. Most of them believe that. And some others believe that it was at the moment of conception. Uh, But there's there's no one thing that they believed about that, other than the fact that we are all spiritual. Our souls are spiritual energy. And it hops here. And they had the same belief with death, except it's the opposite direction. At death, the soul leaves the body. The body has its own soul because everything is spiritual, everything. So the body is made up of basically dirt and dust, uh, which they knew, and they wanted to return that to the earth, back to its primordial state. But the soul, which is pure spiritual energy, reverses the trip. The soul would hop off of earth, go back to Orion's belt make its way north and go back to the north pole star that is all in traditional archaeology literature now so from that perspective there are it doesn't sound like you know the ufo aliens uh yes we're aliens in the sense that we came from another world and came from the stars but it's not physical in that way and there's nowhere that i have ever seen in their old literature where it is beings like us visiting, although I have been told by the modern shamans that that it happens uh it's also that's the ancient alien stuff uh and that maybe we'll go there at some point here, but uh there's not that much in their literature about aliens visiting. there's a lot about these spiritual beings coming. Uh, there's a lot of interaction with spiritual entities come and they always have a purpose in coming. They just don't appear in the sky. Like a lot of people see a light in the sky and say that's a UFO. Well, it doesn't have any uh, purpose apparently other than just appearing to us. Uh, but in the Native American literature, there is a purpose to it. They interact with us. So that that's uh, at least my take on it.
1: i I, I was very interested in the fact that in a lot of burials um, you found um, swan wings or eagle wings that were buried with the people. What what was the purpose of burying the wing with them?
2: Okay, well, a couple things here. First of all, the burial of individuals, like in tombs where you would find uh, sacred objects like a swan's wing or an eagle wing, uh, where you 'd find a very a pretty well preserved skeletal remains, and with those skeletal remains there's usually a lot of sacred artifacts. Now, most Native Americans were not buried that way uh, for uh-huh. to to explain that okay, at the time of Columbus now it is known, totally accepted, and this is mainstream archaeology and anthropology. At the time Columbus arrived in the Americas, which is basically the Bahamas and Cuba, that's where Columbus went. He never made it to North America. But at that time in 1492, there were at least 57 million people living here, 57 million. So we haven't found millions of burials. What we have found in Indian mounds, and there have been tens of thousands of Native American mounds that have been dug into. They have found a few thousand remains. Uh, there have been some mounds found with hundreds. There's at least one that had thousands of remains in it. Those ones that have loads of uh, bodily remains in them appear to be made after large battles where thousands of people died. And yes, they married, they buried them in heaps and so on. However, the remains that are in the mounds are almost always, of of the well-preserved one, are almost always shaman uh, and medicine men and medicine women chiefs and sometimes their entourage. And the reason that they did that is because they believed that there could be reincarnation, which in this case... It's not really reincarnation because they believed all souls could reincarnate because they're spiritual entities that could enter a physical form. But when you see in these tombs these really uh, elaborate burials with the skeleton fairly well preserved, that is more like resurrection. They were hoping that some of these elite chiefs and really important medicine people that they would actually come back and inhabit the same body and resurrect that was the purpose of that same thing as the egyptian pharaohs it's like in egypt you don't find millions of burials you do find burials and but that's uh, and you know mummified remains but the main populace was cremated and that is what native americans did now, they believed that you had to cremate the body to return it to its most primordial state. And they had a concept called the life soul. The life soul is what happens when a body is created. And what it does is it, it animates the body. That's what the life of the body is all about. But the body is only animated until it gets a soul, a spiritual soul. Uh, and they actually called that the free soul because it 's free of the body at first, and after death it 's free of the body again. so the free soul could return in some cases and then move into another body and reincarnate so that 's not it's not so it 's not quite the same thing as resurrection, so actually, most of them were cremated. It was part of a ritual that was held in the winter. It was called the Path of Souls ritual, and it was intended to allow the soul to go back and take that journey back to Orion, travel up the Milky Way north and reach the Deneb or the North Pole Star to go back to the other world, uh, which I've actually seldom discussed what that other world is. I don't think I answered your question because you, you know me. When I get gone on this, I can talk 20, 30 <laughs> minutes straight. So if I didn't uh, answer yeah, I know. re Reask the um, thing.
1: <laughs> well, um, y- you know, in the book, you know, you talk about how shamanism. Uh, the
2: wings, yeah.
1: Yeah, the wings. But, but I want to go back to the term shamanism because um, it's, it's, I, I am, I'm very familiar with it as far as Native Americans go. But but in the book you talk about it going back to, like, the Kisan Cave
0: more yep.
1: than 400,000 years ago. So what is the equivalent – what what did shamanism mean then as far as you can
2: – Okay, you know, so discern. in the book – and, and now, you know, Yeah.
1: it's just that it's a term that I haven't heard um, applied to anything other than Native Americans. But now you're saying that, that it – It began in sites, you know, more than 400,000 years ago, which which makes shamanism the most ancient form of spirit practice on the globe.
2: Yes, it does. Exactly. That's exactly correct. Okay, so traditionally in in archaeology and in anthropology, Native Americans, they say, got their beliefs about shamanism from Siberia. That is the traditional idea. And in many of the books that I use, there are comparisons made between what the shaman in Siberia, which Siberia still has groups that do things very, very similar to what Native Americans do. Uh, And I know, Er years ago I was on your show and we talked about the genetics of it and the genetics of of uh, people that came from Siberia and moved into the Americas, although that is a completely mm-hmm. different story, and, and uh, um, we don't want to go on that trail because it's so complex, too. But we know <laughs> that shamanism was going on in Siberia around seventeen twenty thousand 20,000 years ago, and it is basically the same thing that Native Americans did. Okay, so Andrew has always been interested in shamanism, and Andrew has, has looked at shamanistic practices that went on in Europe. You know, Stonehenge was a site of shamanistic practices. But Stonehenge is not nearly as old as Native American sites. Uh, a of, and things that went on in Egypt, nope, not as old as Native American sites, not even, not even close. Uh, I'm not saying Native American sites are the oldest because they're not. So when we were doing this book, when Andrew and I were doing this book, uh, basically when we started at the very beginning, Andrew uh, heard about this Israeli uh, group of archaeologists that had discovered some really important things in Qesem Cave, uh, which is some miles outside of Tel Aviv. It was discovered when road work was being done. And just like in the United States, when you put in a new road uh, and you're making big changes in the landscape, you have to do an archaeological survey. Well, the road crews broke in as they were were clearing an area. uh, They broke into a cave that had been concealed. It is known as Kesum Cave. And in that cave, they they found artifacts right on the surface. It's a rather deep cave. Well, right on the surface, when they went inside, they found artifacts they called the Archaeologists Inn. Uh, I can't remember the name of the university that they came from, but it's the biggest university in Jerusalem. Uh, so they came and looked at it. They began excavating, and they were astonished. They found all sorts of really highly intricate objects. And the deeper they went, these intricate objects kept coming up again and again. They were able to date a lot of this initially through carbon dating, but carbon dating only goes back 50,000 years. So there are other dating techniques that are used as you go deeper and further back than 50,000 years. When they got to the level of about 400,000 years ago, They identified objects, including a swan's wing, uh, eagle's wings, other bird objects, and clearly what are shamanistic tools. They discovered those at the 400,000 B.C. level. Now, they were very, very friendly with Andrew, the archaeologist. He went, he met with them. They got him uh, to ride out with them. It's a very rugged trip since they closed down the road, and you and now it's in basically a desert, uh, and it's very difficult to get to. Andrew tells the story about how they got a flat tire on the way out there. They were in a Jeep, got a flat tire, didn't have a spare, took a long time to have somebody come and rescue them. Uh, so they eventually they let him into the cave. In the university, they led him into the laboratory, showed him all of the objects, did extensive interviews with him. And they say point blank, these are the archaeologists that say point blank, what we have discovered here is the oldest evidence of shamanism. They're not really sure exactly what type of humans the people were there. Andrew believes they're probably Denisovans, as does the Israeli archaeologists, but they don't have any human bones yet where they can test the mitochondrial DNA and the human DNA. But they do know that it's shamanistic. Well, Native Americans used eagle wings and the feathers of all kinds of raptor birds, such as hawks and eagles, Uh, They also revered swans. In fact, the the Navajos believe that a swan sits at all four corners of the universe as a guardian. But swan's wings and eagle wings are psychopomps. And what the word means, what psychopomp means, is it is a a symbolic method to allow the mental facilities of a person or their consciousness to travel to other levels of consciousness as well as a way to take souls into the sky world and then to the other world. So they use these wings in their shamanic practices and they still do today. Eagle wings are, are legal for Native American tribes. They're not legal for you to have or me to have or anyone who is not a shaman within a recognized Native American tribe because they are considered – they're part of the upper world force. They're part of the world of creation you know and that's a part we never really discussed in the um, three, the idea of the three worlds the upper middle and lower world the upper world has animals that are associated with it and all the animals that are associated with it are birds they are birds such as eagles and hawks they're always raptor birds And also they included swans. Swans were extra special. Swans were the psychopomps that they used to take the soul from this world to the other. The reason is, is that swans land on water. They float on water. And water is the surface of the underworld in Native American lore. So swans are very, very special in these uh, rituals that they perform. So that is why the archaeologists discovering the swan wings and the swan bones Uh, And the eagle bones in the cave were so important. Archaeologists immediately recognized this as a cave that shaman used, and they reliably dated it to 400,000 years ago. Chances are this shamanistic practice goes back further than 400,000 years. But right now, that is the oldest evidence of shamanistic practices known in the world today.
1: Wow. Well, when... Shamans are creating their portals, or or getting into their their states of consciousness where they are able to contact um, other entities.
0: Yes.
1: Um. They they also you know you mentioned the fact that there are portals that are still open now. I yes. I found it fascinating when when you were talking about intelligent living plasmas and how they were, they, they were observable and, and how you related them to places where the earth plates were under stress of some sort. And once that stress was relieved, um, the, the, the observations diminished greatly.
2: Right. The portals kind of dissipate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, there are natural places on Earth where these spiritual forces emerge again and again. They're almost always disruptive. Skinwalker Ranch is an example of that. Andrew has been uh-huh. to Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, he was there with the film crews and all. Uh, that is another story that is in his part of the book. But I'm aware of the uh, many of the details of it. Uh, but anyway, in they knew that there were window areas or portal areas. A window or a portal is a place where these spiritual forces routinely and regularly emerge. Haunted houses, for example, are probably, if they're genuinely haunted and there's all kinds of bizarre manifestations, they're probably a portal or a window area. And window areas and portals always have certain kinds of uh, geology associated with them. That is very specific kinds of rock formations that are put under great pressure which uh, in geology is called seismic or tectonic pressure. Uh, there are pla- there are many many places like this. Uh, one of them that I mentioned in the book, well, really all of southeastern Missouri, the whole quadrant of southeastern Missouri is one. Uh, another place is Topanish Ridge uh, which is a uh, barren Mountain in uh, ya- near Yakima, Washington State, on the Yakima Tribal Reservation Ground. Uh, that is one, too, that has it regularly. But almost always with these natural places where these phenomena occur, it's almost always a disruptive force. And that is one that means that it's almost always a trickster kind of force that emerges, at least at first, and people usually describe trickster kind of entities uh, and disruptive experiences that occur in those places. Uh, You can seek those places out, Uh, I I believe you can probably use uh, certain kinds of mental abilities to attune yourself, perhaps to the Schumann resonance, and then interact with them. But they're usually disruptive, uh, and that is you don't really know what you're looking at. They almost always trick you. So like I said before, you can call these entities voluntarily voluntarily. Uh, through rituals, uh, you have to be very careful doing it, uh, and it's a way to harmonize with them. Uh, or if, even if you don't, they can and will occur on their own. And again, they're usually tied to geology. Uh, sometimes it relates to earthquake phenomena, and people would think that the earthquake is producing it. No, it's the exact opposite. The earthquake makes it go away because the Uh energy that is being used by whatever these entities are ultimately, the energy that's being utilized by them is caused by the building of tectonic strain. For example, when you you get uh, two earthen, well, rock features that are being pushed against each other, uh, such as two earthquake faults or a fault line where two sides are grinding on each other, there is an enormous generation of electricity that occurs. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, in in physics, uh, it's called the piezoelectric effect, and that is any time that you squeeze a crystal or crystalline formations, it generates electricity. Uh, when they actually rub together, it also produces electricity, and in physics, that's called the The tribo, oh my gosh, um, I suddenly forgot the name, but it's tribo, oh, triboluminescence. That's what it's called. Uh, So the word luminescence implies that well, this electricity is released. It is released from the fault line, or it is released sometimes through water flow. That's why the flow of water almost always matters in these places, where the how the water moves around rocks. Uh, and water movements underneath the surface. There's almost water moving underneath the surface always at these sites. And those then produce, these phenomena produce electrical discharges, which then create plasmas. And plasmas then become the key to really understanding what's going on here. And if that's where you want to go, that's where we'll go.
1: Well, yeah, because, you know, when you have these intelligent living plasmas and you have mass um, viewings of phenomena, is that because the people expect to see something and the plasmas create it, or is there, how do you tell the difference between something that is an intelligent living plasma and an actual manifestation of either a spirit energy or an extraterrestrial?
2: Okay, so we won't talk about extraterrestrials here. We can, we can talk about that in a bit, but let me keep the plasma separated from it. Okay. So the plasma is, okay, let's explain what a plasma is. Uh, the pla- a plasma is the fourth state of matter. So everybody knows we have solids, liquids, and gases. And when I was in college, I remember reading that, okay, there's a fourth state of matter named plasma, and, of course, I was in college in the late 60s uh, and very early 1970s, and at that time very, very little was known about plasmas, and plasma research was really in its infancy then, although physicists knew about it and were actively studying it to try and figure out what in the heck is this stuff. So plasma as the fourth state of matter. Here's what happens. Okay, so I had already mentioned how electricity, in this case it's electricity, but it can also be done with just flowing electrons, which is kind of what electricity is to begin with, but it's a free flow of electrons, not through any medium other than the air, so it might pop up into the air, and it becomes a superheated ball of gas. And that is what the description of a plasma was back in the 1960s. Plasma was a superheated ball of gas. They called it ionized gas, but it's actually a soup. It is a mixture of things. So what happens is this. When, it, when the electricity or the electrons emerge and get into the air, they begin ripping. It, it becomes superheated. When it becomes superheated, it starts sending out an electromagnetic field, and it begins it, – well, when I say send out, it reflects an electromagnetic field and produces one. Then it begins attracting physical matter into it. Physical matter at first is just air. It's oxygen and nitrogen and everything else in the air. We are actually moving around in physical air or or in physical matter. Air is physical matter. It's just not very dense. It's not dense at all. So it appears to us there's nothing there, but there is. So the plasma creates a superheated ball of gas by ripping the electrons off of oxygen, nitrogen, and anything else it can get. It pulls in dust of all different kinds, and it becomes a physical Object, But again, it's superheated. It is ionized because it is producing ions. It has, again, ripped electrons, and the more electrons it rips from uh, atoms, the more it keeps ripping from atoms. And again, it has this very powerful electromagnetic field around it. Uh, it's a lot deeper than that. Plasma is deeper than that. But it's truly something that is physical. It is not normal matter in the sense of it. For a long time, physicists actually, starting in the 50s, began believing that it might be a manifestation of life. And the reason they gave it name, the name plasma is because as they observed plasmas in nature and in the laboratory... They took on the the characteristics of blood cells, and blood, of course, is plasma. That is why Mm -hmm. they named this bizarre manifestation of some sort of matter plasma. Most people don't know that either, so it is a physical object. It can be picked up on radar. Plasmas are picked up on radar, they appear to be physically physical objects. They can move around as long as they have some sustained energy. They can move around, they appear to fly, they can form into different kinds of objects. Back in the 50s, David Baum, a very early but extremely famous physicist, speculated because plasmas look a lot like look like blood cells in a way, that they might in fact be alive and that if we could keep them alive long enough that they might in fact take on some sort of intelligence. Well, that was in the 50s. So in 2007, a group of six, six uh, physicists published an article in a peer-reviewed journal called the New Journal of Physics, wherein they had done research on plasmas in the laboratory and sustained them. And what they concluded is this, is that plasmas, have all of the characteristics of a living intelligent being and that if we in fact could sustain their energy long enough they would become sentient that is conscious and aware and in fact they might actually be able to communicate with us what they observed a Forming within the plasma was a double helix, the same thing that is found within human cells, not all of our cells, but almost all of our cells in the nucleus have a, a genetic code. We call it DNA, and DNA yeah. is a double helix. Well, they observed a double helix forming inside the plasmas. And they watched it replicate just like human cells do. That is, the double helix within the plasmas split down the middle and then reproduce themselves. And in human cells, that's the function of DNA. The DNA makes the RNA, which in turn make, makes proteins that build another cell. And then within that cell, there's more DNA than forms. And that's how cells replicate themselves. And that's exactly what plasmas did in the laboratory. I mean, it's astonishing. And they saw what they called evolution. What happens with that is some of the plasmas that form the, what looks like DNA inside, this double helix inside, some of the plasmas produced very weak replicas of themselves. And they watched the, the weak replicas of themselves as they tried to duplicate again, that is produce another cell, they saw them literally die out. That is, if, it, if the weak DNA just seemed to die out. Well, that's how evolution works. And they watched that some plasmas that had extremely strong uh, this form in it that looked like the double helix, when it split, it produced another one that was extremely strong. So all of those characteristics, along with the idea that these plasmas actually started interacting with them, led them to the idea that these are some form of intelligent life that we do not understand. So here's the idea. Plasmas do produce naturally. Like I've said already, they, produce, they, they are produced in areas on Earth where there is tectonic strain. Uh, they are they do emerge from the earth in different places routinely. One of the examples that I gave in the book were the Zeitoun, Cairo, Egypt apparitions of the Virgin Mary, where uh-huh. physicists and even the there was a geologist, a physicist, and a neuroscience that studied those apparitions of the Virgin Mary that occurred in Zeitoun, Egypt, at the Church of Saint Mary from 1960. 68 to 1970 from 1968 to 1969 this apparition occurred virtually every night on the steeples of the top of this church called the church of Saint Mary and it was right after the seven day war and and Egypt was in a very bad way at the time and that's why it didn't become all that well known in the United States well uh, initially when it was seen uh, people thought that it was a uh, a nun, uh, and the first two people that saw it were both mechanics, and they were both Muslims, uh, and they ran into the church and found the priest there and told him that they thought a nun was going to jump to her death from this, this dome that was at the top of this church. Well, almost immediately after that, and rumors started uh, circulating that uh, it was the Virgin Mary appearing because this church had... A legend. Uh, in fact, the legend was written down, and the church was started because they believed this is the place where Mary and Joseph made their trek to Egypt when they had to take a when they had to go to their place uh, of origin for the census that was being taken. They went there. So the legend was that if this church was built, so many years after it was built, the Virgin Mary would return. Well, so I've given you a bit of the story, but then right the very next night hundreds of people showed up and watched, and it occurred again. It looked like a woman, um, uh, diamorphous, I'll use that term. She was kind of translucent, glowing, appeared there. And that started a vigil. A vi- vigil, I shouldn't say visual, vigil. And for the next year, literally tens of thousands and even some nights hundreds of thousands of people came to witness this phenomenon and the descriptions of it were made by the secular church uh, by, or sorry the the secular government wrote about it they did a report on it the local newspaper run by the government was called Oseculo a secular uh, newspaper. They actually sent the reporters there to debunk it. Instead of that, the reporters re- uh, said, this is real. Uh, the Pope, this is a not a uh, Catholic church, but the Anglican Pope sent a group to go and investigate it. They went and saw it. Uh, hundreds, again, hundreds of thousands of people saw it. There were hundreds and thousands of photographs that were taken of it. Many of them are online. Uh, It was a very real phenomenon. Each night, it usually began with like an explosion of light that occurred at the top, and people said they were showered with light. And then from this shower of light, this amorphous blob would sort of appear. Uh, From out of that blob came two, usually it was two gigantic objects which formed themselves into the shape of doves, which then circled around the top of this church regularly. And then in the middle of the amorphous blob appeared what was clearly the Virgin Mary. She sometimes held a baby or an infant. Other times she walked around from one dome to another blowing kisses to the thousands of people below. Uh, The people reported that they could see a veil flowing in the wind when she was there from time to time, but it was really clearly, it wasn't a physical object in the sense that we think of a human being being physical. It was a light form that appeared in the shape of a woman, in some cases an infant, and doves. Well, physicists studied it, geologists studied it, and a very famous neuropsychologist studied it. They all came to the same conclusion. What these people were seeing was a plasma discharge. They never really addressed how in the heck does this thing take on the form of a dove? How in the heck does this form take on the appearance of what is clearly the Virgin Mary? Most people who have uh, investigated it who are skeptics say, well, people imagined all that. Yeah, there were probably plasma discharges there, uh, but people just imagined the rest. But they can't explain all of the photographs that were taken of it, some of which are in the book. So mm-hmm. so the, one more piece of this. The geologist did a study uh, correlating the appearance of this apparition for over a year to what he believed was earthquake activity that was going on some 300 miles away. Uh that's what it correlated with, but he said I don't understand how in the world that the these earthquakes some 300 miles away have anything to do with it. Although although Cairo is a place where earthquakes occur and there is tectonic strain there. So I've 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 uh, you put a nickel in with that question and you just hit uh, a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so so it was almost a year that this apparition op, Oh, it was over a year okay.
2: It was over okay, a year so it, started, it started reducing after a year, yeah
1: And no longer
2: is, Well, is, you know, that's weird uh, No, uh, I have been to that church I have talked to a witness that was there The second night it occurred the very second night, and I've talked to other witnesses there who came the third, fourth, fifth night and started going there every night. Uh, I accumulated the uh, materials, the published materials from Egypt and a lot of the photos when we visited the church. It was very difficult to get in the church, even though we went at night, because it's always packed by worshipers. Uh, It is a Christian church. It's one of the few there that hasn't been burned to the ground uh, by all that... uh, Disturbance that went on in Egypt over the past few years, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, um, I don't, I don't know if I, if I answered what you asked. If not, uh, you can, you can ask me again. Um,
1: well, no, I, I was, I, I was fascinated with that particular incident as well, and you know, kind of wondering if it had continued, if there was anything, you know. Yeah wondering what was what else was going on in the world at that time that my well, um it
2: it was a bad time in Egypt again Israel had just defeated all those uh, islamic and arab countries that were attacking it from every direction i mean it was a it's actually a miracle that that Israel won that war uh but so egypt was really in a very bad way both uh, societally Uh, and their government was in turmoil too. So there was a lot of turmoil. uh, But since then, if you get on the Internet and you search um, Egyptian apparitions at um, their churches, you will see some. And a conclusion that I have come to with some of those, I almost hate to say it, I believe that they have, um, I won't say faking them, that they are actually producing some of these. I don't know that any of the churches there now have duplicated through this uh, what went on at Zeitum. I have watched the films and really analyzed it, uh, but I believe they are, that they have used lasers, which didn't exist back at the time all this went on. Uh, they haven't produced anything that's three dimensional or looks like uh, the Virgin Mary or the doves or anything else. Uh, and I hate well, if, I hate even saying if, all that. But yes, there but, is still if, there if are still have, some reports.
1: If you have a group consciousness, all wanting to see something, in many ways they can manifest it themselves.
2: That is uh, what. Um, Lauren Coleman and Jerome Clark wrote a book called *The Unidentified*, and in it, they they propose a phenomenon called psychic projection, where a large group of people with the same intentions and desires can, in fact, project that psychic energy uh, onto. They didn't use the term plasma or forming plasma. The idea that they used it from is that of a tulpa. I don't know. You've pro- Maybe you've heard the term tulpa. It's spelled T-U-L-P-A. Uh, okay. Tulpa is a uh, far eastern concept of an energy being uh, that manifests, manifests itself based upon the intentions uh, and ideas of the people. And, of course, Andrew and I In our book, we say that manifesting plasmas interact with us and that they conform their appearance and their behavior to the expectations and desires of the people that are interacting with them. So it's somewhat cultural. So yes, we don't use the term psychic projection because I don't believe that the plasmas... I believe the plasmas, in fact, do, when they interact with us, they do read what our expectations are and what our psychological needs are, uh, and they then conform to that and deliver, but at the same time, they are there to deliver some sort of message, just like an angel. The ancient concept of an angel is that it's a messenger. It's here to deliver a message of some kind. Sometimes the message is, I need to destroy this city, as in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Other times it's simply to tell somebody and to tell them what to expect or something that is coming. Uh, So yes, uh, they do conform themselves. uh, And so Uh, The people that are there are, in fact, interacting with whatever is manifesting. And, yes, it would conform its appearance to the overall ideas that the crowd observing them would have. So, yeah, there you go.
1: Okay, well, that said, I can't let you get away without going into the little people.
2: Yeah, okay, so the little people uh so b- before we before we get to them, we'll explain maybe w- what they are, and we'll get yeah. into that t- time aspect. Can I use the t i i m e because that directly relates to the plasmas um they oh, a- time, yeah, time is an acronym uh it's what I prefer to use. Andrew uses the term n beings. And they're energy beings, but the the letter N stands for we don't know their number. They're of any number. Maybe there's just one of them that is manifesting everywhere around Earth, or maybe there's an infinite number of them. But with me, I call them time beings, which uh, it's an acronym, and it stands for transient intrusions of intelligent manifesting energy. And what that means is they're always temporary, they're transient, they come and go, they never stay around. For example, you know, you never hear of someone that says, "I saw a, fly, a flying saucer landed in my backyard," and they talk to me. That person's never able to run to a next door neighbor and say, "Hey, come over with me and look at this thing," you know. And they go over and they bang on the side of it, and so on. That that never happens. So it's temporary. It is an intrusion. It's something that is not normal, and it's intruding into our normal reality. So it's a transient intrusion of intelligent manifesting, because it it is manifesting energy. So it is some sort of energy, which we believe is plasma-based. It has intelligence, and it's something that we interact with. And that, in fact, is what the little people are. So the little people are pretty much identical to the greys in the UFO literature. They are three and a half feet tall. Uh, With Native Americans, sometimes they're blue, and I give an example of a modern Native American using an electromagnetic device, and there his name was Lou White Eagle. Uh, He used this electromagnetic device in one of my offices, and he had an experience with the little people, and he called them little blue people, but he said they're the little people. They look almost identical to the grays, Uh, that are associated with a a lot of UFO abductions. There is a lot of Native American literature talking about them. While they are um, sometimes givers of great knowledge, they always start out as a trickster in Native American lore. And they are considered some of the highest spiritual entities that can be encountered both during rituals and at times spontaneously that will occur to people. Their term, another term that is used, and there's actually Native Ameri- recent Native American books that use this term. It's called the Wogey. The Cherokee called them the Wogey, W-O-G-E-Y. And they say point blank, the Wogey are the exact same thing that you European people call the greys, alien beings. They say they are identical. Well, the little people, again, are three and a half feet tall. They usually, they're not, sometimes they're dressed almost like a uh, European fairy would be dressed. You see that in some of the native, the old Native American lore. And some of the more recent stuff, they're dressed in a single color kind of jumpsuit, which I'm calling it a jumpsuit, but it's clearly not their body that you're looking at. But you can't really discern that they have anything on, per se. Uh, They don't have genitals or anything. They usually have a slit for a mouth. Uh, They often have almond eyes and very spindly fingers. Uh, But again, they're a half feet tall, do very bizarre things to people. They often will poke on the body. In the old Native American lore, they would abduct people at night. That is very common in the Native American ethnography literature uh, that they abducted people. Uh, but again, they're tricksters. Uh, they're not really to be trusted. But if you can get by the trickster aspect, and if you, are, if you are a harmonious, kind person, you can get beyond the trickster aspect, and then they will give you deeper spiritual knowledge. That is the belief about the little people. But every Native American tribe that has existed has legends about the little people. Sometimes they are good. Sometimes they are not good.
1: Huh? There, Did I stun you hap- into silence?
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> Go
1: ahead. Well, Go ahead. It, sort of. But yes, yes, but no. There are. Um, here in Tennessee, there have been large graveyards of little people, skeletons that have been found. Yes, and, yeah absolutely and and that that is definitely um,
2: well yeah a those are fi- those reality. are physical, and you know they have found what uh, you know archaeologists won't call them little people, they'll call them pygmies or uh, yeah. some other term like that. Uh, I believe just a couple years ago there was a tribe, um, an unknown tribe of them found. uh, Not not here, of course, Um, but uh, they have existed. Native American tribes, all of them talk about uh, physical beings or other tribes comprised of very small people like pygmies they also have all the legends of giants you know we've discussed that on your show before Uh, so Uh they have legends of giants existing Uh, the giants are almost always evil not always sometimes they became the tribal leaders until they became evil and there's actually Cherokee legends uh, written down by the ethnographers that describe in detail how they how and why the tribes exterminated the giants uh, because they say they became corrupt and evil Uh, i don't know of any legends about them exterminating the uh the pygmies and i'm using that the term pygmy not because they called them that but because they distinguish those little physical beings from the spiritual entities that they called the little people the little people or the wogi are very clearly spiritual entities entities that do manifest into physicality but they can then dematerialize uh that that is very clear Uh, And, of course, that's what plasmas do. And, again, I've said before, plasmas do, in fact, become physical. They're not dense as we think of dense. I mean, they're not like a – they don't get as uh, dense as a human body does. But they are dense because they pull physical matter into them, and then they form themselves into various shapes and configurations. And, of course, they have different purposes depending upon what they are manifesting to. So, yeah, pygmies.
1: Is, is there any possibility that Bigfoot is one of those kind of anomalies?
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There most Native American tribes believe that. They don't believe that it is a uh a physical creature or a like cryptozoology, you know. They they're out there yeah. looking for it, believing that maybe it's a Gigantopithecus yeah. uh that still exists. Uh, that there's a few of them running around in the Northwest and, you know, the the uh, abominable snowman is uh, over around Mount Everest. Uh, the Native Americans don't believe that they are physical in that sense, but they believe that they are spiritual beings that temporarily become physical. And that's another reason that I use that time uh acronym, you know, temp- Temporal Intrusions of Intelligent Manifesting Energy. Uh, and that's just a simple way for me to explain it. So, yeah, they believe that they are spiritual entities manifesting in physical reality, but only temporarily. They don't stay around all the time. In other words, they pop in and out of what we consider to be physical reality.
1: Are they usually um, in the areas that, that there is a portal of some sort that's open?
2: You know, I would say the answer to that is Yes. Uh, I know, for example, uh, Middle Tennessee has had some earthquakes, and uh, I know of several very credible Bigfoot reports from Middle Tennessee uh, that were made back in the very, very early 1970s by highly credible people who saw them there. However, I know that Bigfoots, uh, the main places they are seen is in the Pacific Northwest. There have been some seen uh, in Arkansas. I have been to the places where they've been seen in Arkansas. Uh, Arkansas's geology is very unique, just as Middle Tennessee's geology is very unique, just as the Northwestern states, uh, like Washington State and Idaho, Uh, Montana, where Bigfoot reports are routinely made, those have the exact same kind of geology. And the geology is always the kind that where tectonic strain occurs, it produces uh, plasma formations. Uh, The the Yakima Reservation, where uh, Topanish Ridge, where these light forms were seen, Uh, It's a place where the natives were at the bottom of the ridge uh, at night where they lived and were working out in the fields. They interacted with and saw Bigfoot appearing and disappearing there at the base of the ridge. I actually spent several nights at the base of that ridge with Washington state government officials when I was doing some research out there. Uh so a, yeah they are in the places where these geomagnetic anomalies would would occur. Yes.
1: Now there're going to be tons of people that are curious about portals.
2: Yes. And, uh well, they are yeah. all
1: over the place. How how do people identify where portals might be?
2: Well, the very first way to do it is to look at the literature and see where, where reports are consistently being made. Brown Mountain, North Carolina, for example, is a place where lights are seen fairly routinely. Uh, it is difficult to real. I mean, you can go to Brown Mountain. They've The, the U.S. government, <laughs> uh, the Forestry Service, has actually set up several spots where you can pull off uh, and park – And then they have viewing stations where you can view the manifestations of these lights because they occur so frequently there. Uh, That is one place. And there are a lot of uh, earthquakes that occur. So the time to go is when there aren't earthquakes occurring. Because remember, I said that most of these manifestations occur when the tectonic strain is building not after it's been released by an earthquake. Other places, southeastern Missouri, remains today a hotbed of activity. Wapapello Lake there in the Piedmont area is a place where loads and loads uh, of reports are made. Uh, There are lots of reports being made in the area of Mount Rainier, even today. Uh, Mount Adams is a place where there is a place where a farm where you can go and stay, uh, and they set up every night. You go outside and sit with groups of people. You take your video camera to film it, uh, and they have a way to interact with it. Asheville, North Carolina, which is very close to Brown Mountain, there are people that actually conduct... uh, Regular night watches, I'll call them a night watch, but they, are, they conduct these in places where these, what I call, plasma formations routinely occur. Uh, there's a place in Cloverdale, Alabama where they occur. The whole northwest there's lots of spots there where these things occur and Arkansas has spots where there are ghost lights that occur routinely and those are believed to be the genuines are believed to be uh plasma manifestations so the first way to identify them is uh to look in the literature and see where they are routinely being reported the second way uh to me uh is well Native American sacred sites where they set up geometric earthworks and mound formations, which have been proven to be aligned to various stars. Uh, And there are certain dates when these sites were used for the conducting of rituals. So those places all would be spots where you could go and sit and interact with these forces. They're not going to come all the time, uh, remember one of the things that uh, we really didn 't talk about too much uh, it's it 's much more difficult today because there 's so much electromagnetic pollution uh, and mainstream medicine calls it electro electro smog that 's actually the term that they use in the literature because they believe there's so many of these electromagnetic Uh, fields around now that are so powerful that they are disrupting all kinds of things with us, such as uh, they think that it's possible that anxiety, uh, depression, and the huge increase in attention deficit disorder, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which was unheard of when I went to school. I mean, I'm sure that some people had it, but today it's like they believe maybe 30% of kids have it. I mean that's astounding, yeah. but there is medical uh, physicians doing research that believe that our huge increase in mental disorders that occurred even before the pandemic, which we know that's worsened everything, but the, yeah. this huge increase is caused by the proliferation of electromagnetic objects and frequencies everywhere around us. I mean we're inundated with it. It's almost impossible to escape. So it's a good idea, if you really want to interact with this stuff, to get to a place that doesn't have much electromagnetic pollution, which pretty much means you've got to be outside, you've got to get yourself grounded, and you need to be in a place where there are no um, cell towers around. You've got to turn your cell phones off, your radios off, anything else like that. Uh, The closer you can be actually physically touching the ground, the better. And then you have to try and get yourself into that meditative state to kind of meld yourself with that Schumann resonance, which means you, you go from full awakeness to almost a meditation state. You're not asleep, but you're not really filling your mind with thoughts either when you hit that exact spot. You know, the whole idea is to empty your mind. So that right. supposedly opens you up to it. So you've got to find a place. But again, I, I prefer the Native American sites, uh, but it can't be in a city. That that is that, No, I wouldn't do it in, within a city. Uh, you need to be out somewhere in nature and try to get away from as much of the electromagnetic pollution as possible. That's my advice anyway.
1: Well, good advice. Um, I know the Hudson Valley had a lot of activity a while back,
2: oh I'm yeah that's where sure. Strieber's experience occurred
1: yeah um and and of course that's the area where all the uh chambers yep. and the stone walls were that that I was so interested in, and oh thought. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, some
2: of those stone what? walls, we're pretty convinced some of those stone walls were used for these rituals, too. They have snaking energy. They look almost like a snake in a lot of the stone walls. They do. and They are they're not useful for anything. They're not useful for agriculture. And a lot of the stone walls, you'll notice, will terminate at a giant stone. So they yeah. actually represent flows of energy. So, yeah, if you can get out to one of those spots those are good places to try to to meld with these forces too, absolutely.
1: I know a lot of those stone walls that seem to be three feet high, if one could dig down, would find that they were probably originally six to eight feet high.
2: Yes, and I I know that those are Native American. I wrote a book about Alabama mounds and visited with one of the archaeologists in the state who had discovered literally thousands of unknown stone mounds. In 2004, they're still finding undiscovered mounds that have never been found before, but there are hundreds and hundreds of these stone walls on these mountains. They were not built by colonialists. They are very clearly Native American, and they were very clearly used for rituals. So the last thing I want to say, we, we never talked about aliens and UFOs. Andrew and I do believe that there have been visitations by by aliens. Uh, we believe that uh, partly because Carl Sagan said clearly they came here. Uh, but we don't yeah. believe that. We believe that very, very, very few reports that people make about UFOs or even UFO abductions or any of that, we think that almost none of those reports represent alien activity. We think they represent these time forces intruding into our reality. They are spiritual forces that we are interacting with. And, of course, you know spiritual forces can be, at least from our perspective, good or bad and that's something yeah. people need to understand. spiritual doesn't necessarily mean good. The devil was pretty spiritual in it in it his her or its own way, and the fallen <laughs> yeah. angels were spiritual entities too. That's what people need yeah. to understand. It doesn't necessarily mean that what you're interacting with is going to be good. it has to do with your intentions and what your motivations are. And Native Americans said that over and over. It's being harmonious with it. It's all about your intentions. And you show your intentions by how you treat other people and how you treat the people around you and how you treat nature. Being kind, treating nature well is all part about being a part of being harmonious. And if you do those things, you're more likely to have a beneficial and positive experience with them. The less you do that, the more the experience is going to be disruptive in your life.
1: Absolutely. And I just noticed the time. Um the title of the book is Origins of the Gods with Doctor Greg Little and Andrew Collins. Um it's a fabulous book. I highly recommend it. And um it will it will make you think a lot. Um, and, Greg, is there a, a website that they can get to, to, to?
2: Well, there's. I'm on a lot of websites. The best thing for people to do is to just Google my name, put my whole name in, Gregory L., put my middle initial in, L, and then last name, Little, Gregory L. Little. You'll find it all on the first page. Just Google my name. Uh, and I'll bet <laughs> this is one of the fastest two hours you've ever had, and it was for me too. Oh,
1: absolutely, and, with you always. I wish I, I had I want to time. thank
2: you. Yeah, I want to thank you, appreciate it, and tell your listeners I appreciate them. Uh, go on uh, Google, find me, and I'm on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, I'm, I write articles for websites, but you can find what you need there. And, again, I really appreciate it. You've got a good show. Keep on keeping on. That's what you've got to do.
1: Absolutely. You as well. Um, yeah, I thank you. Thank, I want to thank you. Greg, I want to thank um, everybody who's listening. Please check all this material out. It's going to enlighten you in some amazingly wonderful ways. Good night, everybody, and I will see you uh, when I see you.